gracious and loving God, on this Thanksgiving week, we are mindful that we do have a lot to be thankful for, even amidst the chaotic and hectic and difficult nature of life, the things that aren't working, the things we struggle with, the hardships we endure. We also know that we are here, that we are alive, that we have hope, and that we have this opportunity to lean in together as Christians, to study your word, to reflect on your grace, and to be your people. And so it is in that spirit that we gather today, and uh, we love you, and we ask for your blessing upon us. It's in Jesus's name we pray. Amen. Now, the main point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tent that the Lord and not any mortal has set up. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Hence, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They offer worship in a sanctuary that is a sketch and shadow of the heavenly one. For Moses, when he was about to erect the tent, was warned, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a more excellent ministry, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted through better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need to look for a second one. God finds fault with them when he says, The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their ancestors, on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I had no concern for them, says the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach one another or say to each other, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and growing old will soon disappear. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly sanctuary, for a tent was constructed, the first one, in which were the lampstand, the table, and the bread of the presence. This is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a tent called the Holy of Holies, and it stood the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, in which there were a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot speak now in detail. Such preparations having been made, the priests go continually into the first tent to carry out their ritual duties, but only the high priest goes into the second, and he but once a year, and not without taking the blood that he offers for himself and for the sins committed unintentionally by the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the sanctuary 
has not yet been disclosed as long as the first stent is still standing. This is a symbol of the present time during which gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various baptisms, regulations for the body imposed until the time comes to set things right. But when Christ came as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled so that their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to worship the living God. All right. Thank you, Evie, for that wonderful reading. Just to offer a few notes about Hebrews 8 and the first few verses of Hebrews 9, I want to start with this claim that the worship that the priests, according to the tribe of Levi, uh, uh, according to the order of Aaron, um, that is kind of being played with that imagery that flows so much out of Numbers and Leviticus, um, that this is said to be a sketch and a shadow of something happening in the heavenly court or of something great or something invisible. And I think the first thing I want to do is just to remind us that Hebrews was written in very sophisticated, eloquent Greek, uh, that this is a very educated person who is writing this, that um, if one were to analyze the text and its original language, it is very clear that unlike, for instance, whoever wrote the Gospel of Mark, uh, this is a very sophisticated piece of writing, uh, and we can assume a, a high education from whoever is actually writing. And I say that because there's this reference to the idea of sketch and shadow. And one of the things that was present in Hellenistic philosophy at the time in the background would have been people like Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. Now, not that these were the thinkers who mainly informed the imaginary of whoever wrote Hebrews, right? That was informed more by the Old Covenant, by the Old Testament, and by the history of Israel. But it was there in the background. And so for those of you who know about Plato and his little work, The Cave, he describes a group of people in that little work. Uh, and it's an allegory about people who live their life chained to the wall of a cave. Uh, and as they are chained to the wall of a cave, they are facing a blank wall. And on that wall, uh, they see sh uh, shadows that are projected on the wall. And those shadows come from objects passing in front of a fire behind them. Uh, basically, what they see is a shadow of what the true reality is. And they give names to these shadows and they build a life around these shadows, and they fight about the meaning of these shadows. But in truth, even though the shadows are experienced as their reality, they are a reflection of the true reality that lives behind the fire. 
And basically what Plato said was that all of us are sitting around looking at shadows of what the real action is hidden in the heavens. And that freedom is about becoming enlightened or about seeing that whatever the true reality is, is not what we think it is, not what we uh, perceive with our sense perception, but that the true reality is something greater, that what we see is kind of an illusion. Uh, and it's an illusion for Plato, not because it isn't real, but rather because its reality is different than what we think. The reality is whatever's casting the shadows in the first place. And so for people like Plato, the whole point of, you know, I'll put it in air quotes, salvation was to wake up and to see that this material world is kind of dirty and uh, just a, a weird reflection of where the true goodness is in the heavens. And so we escape things when we die like this, this, this body and we go to the real place um, where the spiritual um, eternal forms live. Now, I say that because, uh, first of all, um, there are some places where Christianity seriously departs with uh, Platonic thought. Uh, this is that this material reality is good. It's holy. It's beautiful. God took on flesh and entered this material world. It's not a prison we need to escape. In fact, the Bible ends not with the world burning up, but with heaven descending and there being a marriage between what you and I experience here on earth and whatever does exist in heaven. So it's not that earth is discarded, but that heaven and earth are married. Uh, they come together, and that's what salvation is. Um, and so there's some places where Christian thought doesn't really align with Plato. But I do think that this idea that the author of Hebrews is playing with is kind of interesting. Basically, what he's saying uh, is that all the worship that was happening with the people of Israel, with the killing of goats, the killing of bulls, with the one high priest who got to go to the Holy of Holies, and but once a year, that all of this is not the true tent. It's not the true place where God lives, but rather it is a sketch and a shadow. It is a prefiguring. It is a pointing. It is a pale reflection of where the true action is, the true heavenly court. So we've already, in Hebrews, been invited to boldly approach the throne of grace, to enter the holy of holies, right? We've been told that we can do this because we have a great high priest. And so in order to basically make sense of what came before, the author says, when the earthly priest was able to enter the holy of holies, and he alone this was just a sketch, a shadow, a pointer of something to be revealed later. You know, Paul puts it like this in Galatians. He said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those under the law. And so it's not that the author of Hebrews is saying that everything that came before Jesus was a giant mistake. He's not saying that it was awful. He's not saying that it was a failed project and God had to intervene, but rather it was a pointer to something that wouldn't be revealed until what Paul called the fullness of time, that there was a better covenant coming, a more robust covenant, a covenant that was for all people, and that um, 
that contained a much more robust, big, bigger promise, a promise for the whole world, not just for a particular people. And above all, what differentiates this covenant, according to the author of Hebrews and quoting Jeremiah, is that the new covenant will be established uh, on our heart. Uh, After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. They will not teach others and say, know the Lord, for they will all know me and I will be merciful towards their iniquities. And so I think kind of what the author is playing with is that what happened before Christ was revealed with the giving of law and the whole sacrificial system where animals were killed to atone for our sins. I mean, in our in our heart and bones, we, we all know this was never the fullness of what God was going to do. I mean, continually slaughter animals to remove uh, stains from our conscience, right? That was never the fullness, but rather the point was always for the law to be on our heart, for us to know God intimately, not for us to conform our behavior out of fear, and not for us to do things because we believe we have to for God to love us, but rather to actually know God, to love God, to desire to serve God from the heart, not because Moses says we have to. I mean, right, think about Moses going up to get the stone tablets coming down. What are the people doing? They are engaged in some serious mischief around a golden calf. They are about as far from God's heart as one can be. And so what follows is the giving of the law. There are blessings and curses of the covenant. There is a strong exhortation to conform one's outward behavior to what is on that exterior tablet. And that's a step in the right direction, right? It is a step in the right direction to move from having an orgy around a golden calf to following a set of holy laws and conforming our behavior to those laws. And whenever we think about the laws of society, I'm very glad we have them. Um, My heart may not be interested in obeying the speed limit, and and the state uh, will never be able to get my heart to care too much, but I'm glad there's a rule and I'm glad there's a fine if I fail to do it. Same with using my cell phone uh, whenever I drive. Um, right? Because the whole point of a law is to curb sin. It's to limit poor behavior. That's what the laws of society are ultimately about. They're not to help you fall in love with society. The laws of society are meant to manage sin, to manage chaos so that we can live a fruitful life. But God's aims are higher. God's not just trying to limit our poor behavior. God's covenant is for us to fall in love with him. And so whenever it says, in speaking of a new covenant, he's made the first one obsolete, I think that we have to be pretty careful about how we interpret that. What is obsolete and growing old will soon disappear. It's not that God's covenant with the people of Israel has disappeared. It's not that that's worthless. If we read Romans 9 through 11, it's very clear Um, that that call was a beautiful manifestation of what God did in history. And there's something about that covenant that still lives on, even as it was fulfilled, we believe, through Jesus. But what is obsolete, and, and I don't think it's offensive to say this, what has disappeared 
is the whole idea of sacrificing an animal for our sins to be atoned for. Uh, I'm not a, a, an expert on um, the practice of Orthodox Jews. Uh, I, I just don't know. But I don't think that there's a lot of animal sacrifice happening anymore. I mean, I, I really do think as a manner of atoning for sins, as a real belief that killing a, a bull or a goat atones for sins, that that is obsolete and it has disappeared relative to this one true sacrifice that has been made. So it's not that God's covenant with Israel has disappeared, but whenever God offers himself on a cross for the sins of the world, to atone for everything that's ever happened that's not in accordance with God's heart. I, I think we can say that the sacrificial system of the temple uh, is not something uh, that, that's going to be present in our thinking, in our heart, um, whenever we think about the sacrifice of, of the Son of God. So I think that's kind of what the author of Hebrews is saying. Whenever he gets into all this stuff, or she, uh, I like how. Um, uh, Evie reminds us that um, Priscilla may have been the author of this. Um, whenever the author uh, talks about the tent, there's all these things like the lampstand in there. So whenever we read that figuratively, what does that point to? Well, it points to the light of the world, right? When we think about the bread of presence, um, what does Jesus say? I am the bread of life. When we think about the holy place, we think about that throne of grace that you and I have been invited to uh, approach. And so I think what the author of Hebrews would have us do is to see everything that happened inside this tent as being very valuable, valuable because it prefigured or pointed to a greater reality that has been revealed in the fullness of time. And this is true uh, mostly with the idea of the priest, right? The priest who only got to go into the Holy of Holies once a year. And that uh, what allowed access to the Holy of Holies was the blood of an animal that he offered for himself. So contrast one priest going into the Holy of Holies once a year, which was an earthly tent, contrast that with all of us, all of us going into the Holy of Holies of God's presence through the Holy Spirit anytime we want, right? That's kind of the vision being offered. Whereas before one person could go once a year, now we all go and we go at the good pleasure of God's invitation because we have a high priest who has made that possible. And we do that time and time again, not because we need to have our conscience cleansed, but rather as a celebration as an offering of thanksgiving, because Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. Uh, and we do that until the time comes for God to set things right. I want you to notice that in chapter 9, verse 10, until the time comes to set things right. And so um, in this whole worldview, there is a judgment. There is a final day. There is a final reckoning where God kind of sets everything right, whatever that means to you, we can explore that together. Uh, and so we are waiting for something. We are journeying towards something together. That's a big part of how the author envisions uh, our task. Um, but I think the, the final thing I want to leave us with before we have some conversation is really that last verse 
right? If the blood of goats and bulls sanctified people, and it did. I mean, God set this up. Somehow that sacrificial system worked for the people, right? So if the blood of goats and bulls was able to remove sin, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the Holy Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will that purify our conscience to worship the living God? I think that whenever we go back to the purpose of Hebrews and what the author is trying to accomplish, remember, this is not a PhD. It is not an intellectual exercise. He wants the people to feel forgiven, and he wants them to feel like they are able to go into God's presence um, and not be consumed, right? Because later on, uh, the author will say, our God is a consuming fire. So what gets consumed? It's not us, but rather our sin, our fear, uh, all the things about us that rob us of joy and life. That's what gets burned up, not you, but rather the things that keep you from living the abundant life Jesus offered.